a lot of you know we had been doing cookouts uh, on Fridays um, throughout the warm months. Well, now that it's getting cooler um, and people aren't necessarily wanting to stand outside in the cold and eat a hot dog, um, we have decided to um, change that up a little bit, and we're going to serve hot chocolate here at the church at 5.30 this coming Friday. So if anybody wants to volunteer with that, if anybody's interested in helping out, um, just get a hold of me, Dave, Steve, Ali, or AJ, um, just anybody you see up on stage tonight. Uh, and that's really all I have as far as announcement goes, so I'll pray and we'll get started. Cool. Um, Father, I thank you for this time that you've let us um, set aside to come together, to worship together, to learn together, and I ask God that you open the... Um, open the hearts of those here and open our ears to the message that Dave is going to bring. Um, God, I ask that you, you speak to us and let us know what you want us to hear. Uh, I thank you again um, in Christ's name. Amen. What's up, Revolution? I'll take it. All right. Yeah, that's, that's the best it's been in a minute. Right on. So I'm glad you guys are here. I'm pretty excited. Just curious. Does anyone like pay attention to the music that's being played? Anyone catch Fallout Boy in that last tune? Anyone else? Were you emo in high school? I was like undercover. Like, like I wore like Slipknot T-shirts all the time, but like at home, I was like, "Look, no one can know that I like AFI and Fallout Boy." And like, I'm like, "Yeah, like December Underground." Say what you want about me, whatever. Don't judge. Right, anyway, see Holly scaling the pews. I didn't know it was that kind of service. She's filled with the spirit, ladies and gentlemen. She is running wild. Uh, <laughs> This is, again, this is all in the podcast, and this has nothing to do with anything that I'm going to say. Um, <laughs> so, um, I don't watch a whole lot of cable, right? I figured most of you don't either, right? Right? Like, no, not because like it's yes, Netflix for life, absolutely. It's not like cable's the devil necessarily. Like, there's a lot of crap on cable. There's a lot of crap on Netflix too. But we're part of the Netflix generation. Um, like, if it weren't for the fact that Time Warner just bundles their internet, phone, and cable so cheap, I would not have a television. Uh, except for Netflix, again. So we're all riding that party, and I'm not going to make a Netflix and chill joke. I thought that I was going to. Uh, just kind of did, I guess. Um, if, you're, if you're married, that's totally fine. If you're not, cut that crap out. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so I don't listen to, I don't listen, not listen, I don't watch a whole lot of uh, cable, so I don't see a whole lot of commercials on TV. Uh, I don't, which, thank God, right? Like, you can do, like, a 30-episode block of Gotham, and you're like, oh, I don't have to put up with any crap except for the mediocre acting. Um, but, so I don't see a whole lot of commercials on TV, but I did see one on Instagram. Um, and, it, and it wasn't, like, an Instagram-funded commercial. It was, like, someone else posted a video of a commercial. Um, and some of you guys may have seen this. A lot of you probably haven't. Um, have you seen the Campbell's Soup ad for, like, Star Wars-themed stuff? All right, I'm getting blank stares. Cool, so I get to tell you guys about something new because I never know what's going on in the world. Um, in this uh, Campbell's Soup ad, I don't know if they're doing like Death Star chicken and noodle soup or something like that. Like, I don't know what it is. But it's some like Star Wars themed thing. And in the, in the ad, you see this uh, dad sitting with his son and he's spoon feeding him chicken noodle soup saying, I am your father. And then, uh, right, it's pretty funny. And then, uh, and then it pans over a little bit, and there's another man sitting next to the kid that says, no, I am your father, and feeds him. Um, it took me a minute. I was like, is there, like, a custody battle going on, like, that I don't know about in this commercial? And then it hit me, like, no, like, this is supposed to be a homosexual couple that has adopted a kid. Um, and, like, it's uh, Campbell's kind of trying to, like, normalize um, homosexuality, right? That if it's in like a commercial, right? It's like our culture's reached that point. We're like, okay, everyone should accept this. It's in like a chicken noodle soup commercial. Um, 
Again, like the normalizing of homosexuality in our culture. Um, I'm, not ta- I'm not preaching about homosexuality this evening, um, nor do I have an agenda to talk about that all the time. But before we go any further, I just want to say this. I stand by what the Bible teaches um, about practicing homosexuality. Um, so, like, don't misconstrue anything that I'm getting ready to say. Uh, the Bible calls it sin. The Bible calls it sin, just like greed is sin. Uh, just like lying is sin. Just like murder is sin. Not taking care of your family. Not working if you're able. All these things, right? And God hates all sin. Period. All right? And also, there is salvation for anyone who will repent and put their faith in Christ. So I just want to get that out of the way and, and say that. Stand by what the Bible teaches about practicing homosexuality. But back to the Instagram post that I saw. Um, again, it, w- it was posted by a Christian page. Um, and this Christian page puts out like these like reformed memes. Some of you guys know what I'm talking about. It's like this certain kind of theology, memes making fun of it and other uh, schools of thought. And it's usually like pretty funny stuff or like really like intellectual, like pretty solid sayings, and, like inspirational quotes. Um, but on this post, uh, this dude's caption, I'm assuming it's a man running the Instagram page. Um, maybe that's sexist, I don't know. Um, but he, he captioned the video of the Campbell Soup ad and he kept saying, like, this is disgusting, uh, this is vile, this makes me sick, God is going to punish, God is going to judge. And I saw that and I was like, dang, like, that's pretty, like, stern language, like, all right. Um, and I read the 58 comments that were on there already, and every single one of them uh, expressed anger and expressed, like, I feel, like, physically sick from watching this ad, and people being really, like, melodramatic, and about how much, like, how wicked Campbell's Soup is now, and, like, how, how like, wicked and vile homosexuality is. Um, and what bothered me when I was reading all that, because some people were saying things that I'm like, sure, on one hand, God hates sin. He thinks sin is disgusting, and sin is something that we should hate. No matter what it is, we should hate sin. Um, but I've never seen that, that man post on his page anything about greed being disgusting. Um, I've never seen that man post about you know, porn is disgusting. I've never seen him post anything else, like any other sin, and talk about how vile and sick to his stomach it makes him feel. Um, so that kind of bothered me. Again, I'm not saying that he doesn't hate all those other sins as well. Um, but what bothered me the most when I was reading these comments is that not one person that commented, out of like 40-some people that commented, not one person mentioned prayer for or evangelism of the homosexual community. Not one person was like, hey, dude, like we should pray that people would repent that are practicing homosexuality. Hey, man, like what, like, what are some tactics? Like, like how, can, how can I talk to you? What are some good conversation starters? How can we handle this graciously so that they might repent and come to know Jesus? I did not see that at all. Period. From not not from one person. And actually, these people. And what bothered me the most is like in all these comments about how angry that they were about homosexuality and about this ad. I did not see one. I mean, these people. They actually seemed like happy that God punishes those who don't repent. And I'm here to say God's justice is good. Right? If He meets out justice on someone and punishes someone because they won't repent and put their faith in Christ, that's good judgment. Um. God is good in everything that he does. But these people were like gleeful, right, that some people won't repent and that God will punish for eternity in hell. Um, that bothered me, right? And I know you guys have seen like the same things on Facebook recently with the terrorist attacks in Paris. Um, 
And, and, and I, I see people, you know, like Donald Trump, like we should bomb the crap out of him because you can't swear at church with a microphone in your hand. Uh, but like Donald Trump, like we should bomb the crap out of him. That's what I do. Or I see like Facebook posts, like let's turn that desert into glass, man. And I imagine they take a dip of Copenhagen after they say that. Um, but like, <laughs> whatever. Um, but like, Let's turn it to glass. Let's, let's bomb them. I hate them. Uh, we shouldn't let immigrants in our country, right? This is what happens. I just, one thing after another about how much these people hate terrorists. And that's a great thing to hate, right? That's like top ten things. If you're going to hate something, hate terrorism. Like, that's a phenomenal thing to hate. Um, that's wicked and it's awful. Um, but I've seen next to no one talking about praying that the terrorists would repent and believe in Christ. I've seen next to no one. There are a few, but I've seen next to no one. Um, I've seen next to no one talk about how Paul's job was to kill Christians uh, until Christ pursued him and he was converted. I, I see no one remembering that story in, in the book of Acts. All I see is, let's, let's kill him, let's get even. Um, I see no one talking to, how can we spread the gospel to ISIS? I see none, nothing like that. Like, can we get more missionaries to Syria? I see no, no posts like that. It's all hang, anger and hatred and glee that God judges the unrepentant. And all that I can think is, like, how unchristian is that? Like, how not like Jesus is that kind of mentality? Jesus himself says in Luke 19, 10, he says, He has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Right? He says, like he says earlier in the book of Luke, he's like, you know, do, do, the, do the sick or do the well go to a doctor? No, the sick do. And I've come for the sick. I've come for those who don't know God. Right? In the Old Testament, God says in Ezekiel chapter 18, I take no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. But he would rather them repent and turn so that they might live. Like this is the heart of God that we see throughout the Bible. He doesn't desire to destroy sinners. He, he will if they won't repent. But he desires that they would repent and turn to him, And this has to become our stance. This has to become our mentality. right? But too often we forget ourselves that we are sinners. Especially if you've been a Christian for like any length of time at all. You forget, it's very easy to forget that you're sinners, right? Because you're putting sin to death. You're not the same person that you used to be, right? Like maybe you like were like me and, and, you, and you slept around a lot and you treated people awful and you did drugs and you drank all the time and stuff like that. And you're like, well, I don't do that stuff anymore, so I'm really not like a sinner like that. <laughs> Right? We do that because we forget that we're sinners. We forget that, that we deserve hell just as much as any terrorist, just as much as any prostitute, just as much as any drug dealer, um, child molester, rapist, that we deserve hell the exact same because all of our sin and their sin is first and foremost an offense against God. Right? We forget that our sin is just as disgusting, even though it's not as public or it's not as culturally heinous. We forget that. And when we forget that, we begin to think that some people are beyond God's grace. We classify ourselves, usually in this group of people, we make mistakes, right? <laughs> We're not sinners. These guys, though, you know, like the heroin addict, that dude's screwing up. That dude deserves God's wrath, right? We, or, or we think that these people are beyond God's redemption. Or rather, we secretly hope that some especially bad people, whoever they may be, we hope that they're going to receive punishment from God. We hope that instead of hoping and praying that they would repent and turn and put their faith in Christ. And that's totally not cool. Like, to, to like be very simple in my statements, that's not okay. 
Um, And tonight we're going to see Jesus make it clear that he seeks the lost. That he'll take anyone who will believe, regardless of their past, regardless of what they're doing this very moment. If they will turn from the life that they're living and put their faith in him and follow him, he wants them. Right? And we're going to see that not only does Jesus want them, but that God the Father rejoices whenever any sinner turns and puts their faith in Christ. That that's the heart of God. That he has, He's delighted. He has joy when that happens. That he does not desire the destruction of, of sinners, but he desires to redeem that which is broken. Um, but, but I think we're also going to see that if we refuse to seek out sinners like Jesus did, or if we desire people's destruction instead of their salvation, then we really can't know God. We really can't. If that's our heart's stance towards those who don't believe. Um, So tonight, um, we're going to be in Luke chapter 15. We're continuing this series through Luke. Uh, If you're here and you're new um, and you don't have a Bible or the Bible you have is really hard to understand, take one of those blue Bibles that's in those pews. um, But it's also going to be up here on the projector. Is the projector working? Well, look at that. Uh, Didn't know. All right, but we're going to be in the whole 15th chapter of Luke. Yeah, like, don't be a wuss. I know what some of you are thinking. Really, a whole chapter? It's only 33 verses, uh, and it, really, if you're reading it by yourself, it'd probably only take you, like, three or four minutes to read the whole thing, and a lot of you don't read your Bibles anyway, uh, so this will be good for you, and apparently not very many people thought that was funny. Did I hit too close to home? Did it hurt? Good. Read your Bibles. Uh, there's your PSA for the week, um, but we're going to do, like, a hit and run through this chapter. I'm going to try to bounce through it as quick as I can and see what the big picture is that Jesus is trying to get across. So starting in verse 1 of chapter 15. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. All right, so real quick, we talk about this a lot, um, or every time that we see the phrase tax collectors and sinners. You guys got to know, this is the worst group that you could possibly think of, right? Culturally for them, tax collectors and sinners, the lowest of the low, Everyone hated them. Everyone hated tax collectors and sinners. All right, tax collectors. Um, how, how do I, how do I explain this? Um, imagine if, if it was government sanctioned and encouraged for someone that you know that lives on your street to take money from you and give it to ISIS. Think that. That's what a tax collector essentially does, right? These are Jews who are hired out by the Roman government to collect taxes, quite literally a tax collector, for the Roman government. And if the Romans said take 20%, they would probably take 25 or 30% so that they could pocket some of your money, all right? And Rome was incredibly oppressive to every country that they took over, um, Israel included, where Jesus is, is at. Um, so... So to get like an idea of how brutal the Roman Empire was, um, whenever they would come into a country or a city and take it over, it wasn't uncommon for them to take thousands, like up to 20,000, 30,000 people out of this city and crucify them alongside the road leading into the city. Just to drive the point home, don't mess with Rome. They were incredibly oppressive, so like tax collectors are funding that. Now imagine you're a Jew living in Israel And you know tax collectors that live in your town. You hate them. They're race traitors. They're national traitors. They're religious traitors. Right? Worst. Like, we really can't overemphasize how, like, big pieces of trash a tax collector was. Right? And then sinners. That's pretty much every other undesirable group that you could think of. These would be, like, people who are, like, physically deformed. Uh, These would be prostitutes. These would be drunks. These would be... um, For us, this would be like drug dealers or like uh, murderers, rapists, um, 
addicts, alcoholics, stuff like that, like the lowest of the rest of the community. Um, These are the people who were thought to be forsaken by God, that they were too far, their sin was too great, they had no hope, that these people were too bad to be shown mercy by God, completely beyond redemption. Um, But these were the people that were coming to Jesus. This is kind of funny. Jesus says at the end of the last chapter we were in last week, uh, chapter 14, he says, those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Meaning like, come repent. Anyone, anyone who this message affects, come and follow me. I'll take anybody. I don't care who you are. I don't care where you've been. Come. I don't care what your sin is. I want you. And these are the people that come, the lowest of the low. These are the ones who are coming to faith in Jesus or like Matthew, Jesus' disciple was a tax collector. The woman who, you guys hear the story about the alabaster box that there's like songs about. That all, if you grew up in church, you probably know it. That woman was a prostitute. These are the people coming to Christ. And Jesus is completely overjoyed that they're coming. Right? He eats with them. Right? Meaning like in first century culture, if you, take, if you eat a meal with someone, you accept them. You're letting them know, I love you. Right? Like we're cool. Like, I, I, like there's no judgment here. Um... I want a relationship with you. So Jesus truly loves the lowest of the low in his society. And this royally ticks off the Pharisees. Right? They're self-righteous. Right? The Pharisees are. They, 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 don't, they don't view themselves as sinners of any sort whatsoever. They, they, they don't think, because they don't think they really sin, they don't think that they need grace from God or mercy from God at all. Really, and what they do is they differentiate themselves. Pharisees literally mean separated ones. Right, So these are the sinners. I don't do stuff like that. So they elevate themselves up on this pedestal so that they can look down on everyone else and say, you deserve God's punishment. I don't. You're a sinner. I'm righteous. Um, And the biggest thing I want us to remember about Pharisees is they actually desired the destruction of sinners. They didn't desire them to repent. They didn't want them to come to know the true God of the Bible. They didn't want them to walk in holiness. They just wanted God to destroy them. Right, actually, um, it's, it's so bad. Their disassociation with sinners and their desire for the destruction of a sinner instead of their repentance is so deep that I have a quote from a, a really old rabbinical source um, that says this. Let not a man associate with the wicked, even to bring him near to the law. That was like, that's like what a Pharisee teacher said back in the day. Right? Like, have nothing to do with them. Not even so that they would repent and begin to follow God. Just let them go and pray that God would, would just strike them down. That's the heart of a Pharisee. Right, so I just wanted to get that in our minds, tax collectors and Pharisees. Right, and ask yourself, who do you view in our culture as a tax collector? Like, who, who's your people? Is it terrorists? Is it homosexuals? Is it, you know, what is it for you? Who's the tax collector? Um, and Jesus is going to give us three parables that we're getting ready to run through. And they're going to address the Pharisees. We usually don't think about this, but we've got to keep the context in mind. That's why I want to spend a minute on it. Um, Jesus is going to mainly address the Pharisees' problem with what he's doing. And that sinners and tax collectors are coming. So keep that in mind. And, and Jesus is going to drive towards one big point. And Jesus is going to show the heart of God towards sinners. And Jesus' own mission for coming to earth. But before I do that, I'm going to take a drink. This is delicious. I'm parched. Does anyone say parched anymore? I do. Uh, But verse 3. All right, let's hit it. So Jesus told them this story. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost until he finds it? Right? That's like, duh. That's what you do. Right? If you're a shepherd, um, 
It's probably not your sheep that you're taking care of. It's someone else's. It's your responsibility to go get that sheep. So this is a no-brainer. Jesus is expecting the answer yes. Like, who wouldn't do this? Well, anyone would do this if they were a shepherd. And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. When he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. Right, so what Jesus is, is getting at here, he's saying, who wouldn't go? Who wouldn't go after the sheep? Jesus is putting himself in the position of the shepherd. This is what I've come to do. I've come to seek that which is lost and restore it. He's saying that's what a shepherd would do, that's what I would do. And whenever I find it, I lovingly put it on my shoulders and I walk it home and I'm yelling for my friends, come celebrate with me. He's saying in the same way, this is what he's come to do for sinners. And that God rejoices in heaven whenever someone repents over the 99 who are righteous. Whenever Jesus says that, it's kind of backhanded because Jesus is kind of a smart aleck to the Pharisees sometimes. like. People don't want to admit that, but he is. He's really funny. What he's saying is like uh, a better, better translation, if you were like the ESV or something like that, talks about um, just 99 who are righteous instead of and haven't strayed away. Um, it, it's meant to be like a kind of a jab to the Pharisees. 99 who think that they're righteous. Right? Because all over the Bible we're told no one is righteous apart from Jesus. Right? Everyone needs to repent. Um, so he's saying God rejoices over the sinner who is found and repents, more so than the ones who think that they're righteous and think that they don't need to repent. And then he goes on. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she will call in her friends and neighbors and say, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost coin. In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. Right. So Jesus is just compounding parables. Uh, driving the same point home. So all of this together so far, these first two parables say this. Jesus has come to seek the lost. The coin is lost. The sheep is lost. He has come to go to them. He has come to love them. He has come because he loves them um, to call them to repent, to tell them, hey, you are under the wrath of God for your sin. God does punish sinners, but I'm telling you, if you will put your faith in me, You'll owe God nothing for your sin because I'm going to pay it. I am the Messiah. And then if they'll do that, he's come to ultimately save them. Right, so that's what he's saying about himself. And again, he's saying that God rejoices over them if they will repent. That God desires their salvation. He does not want them to remain lost. That God is seeking after them because he loves sinners. Essentially, I think Jesus is saying this. There are none that are too lost. Like, remember that. There are none that are too lost. There are none that are so far away from God that He cannot find them. Right, consider this. If a sheep goes off by itself, here's a shepherd in the freaking wilderness. Like, think, think how, like, I'm not a country guy. That's a lot of terrain, right? He doesn't know where to begin. It's just not there. The sheep, okay, sheep's gone. Uh, where do I start? I don't know, John. Try that way. Um, and, and he would go, right? And there's mountainous terrain, and there's valleys, and there's like rivers, and there's all kinds of dangerous stuff out there. And the, the sheep is not so lost that the shepherd won't go. And he'll go and go and go and go until he finds it. And he'll keep looking until he finds it. None are too lost. Right, that's what I'm seeing here. That no one, 
And we say this a lot at Rev. No one can out the grace of God. No one. God has more grace than you have sin every time. There's nothing you've done that God can't forgive. And also, remember this, Jesus came for all who would believe, right? John 3.16, everyone knows that one. Um, you know, God loved the world so much that he sent his one and only son that, that those who would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life, right? Those who would believe. That's who Jesus came for, anyone who will put their faith in him. So remember that no one's too lost. And again, all need to repent. This is for everyone, even the religious Pharisees. Everyone needs Jesus to find them, right? Not just an especially bad group, Right, whatever that group is in your head. Not just them, but all people need Jesus because all are lost apart from God. And Jesus is actually going to further show the heart of God towards sinners in the next parable. And you guys, if you haven't heard the first two, you know this one probably. If you have, really, I had to read it in high school. So like most of you probably know this one. Um, it's the, the parable of the prodigal son. Right, most of us have heard this. This is arguably the most famous teaching in the entire New Testament. Um, this is the one that everyone knows. Um, but honestly, it should be renamed, right? Um, it should be like the parable of the loving father. Like, that's what your Bible should say instead of the prodigal son. Um, because really, this parable is about the father, right? So keep that in mind. The father's the main character, not the younger son. And also, try to pay attention to the older son, too. Um, start thinking about the older son. Um, but again, focus mainly on the actions and attitude of the father, because that's who this thing is about. Verse 11. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. I I want you to get this. The younger son who wants that piece of the estate is a piece of garbage. He's a piece of trash. He goes to his father, who we have no reason to think that he's not been a good father, Right? I know we're only two verses into the parable. We have no reason to think he's not a good father. He says, hey, Dad, I wish you were dead. I want what's coming to me. I, I don't want to be your son, really. I don't want to stick around here anymore. I don't want to work for you. I don't want to live in this house. Right? I just want what I get when you die. So he's essentially telling his dad, I wish you were dead. I want my money. This son is a piece of trash. Keep that in mind. And a few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. So he takes the piece of the estate that belongs to him as the younger son. And he goes to another country, a Gentile country, um, and wastes everything. Right? That word wild living, uh, like the Greek word is like essentially debauchery. Right? Like his older brother later in the parable is going to accuse him of spending all of his money on hookers. Um, so like imagine, um, just truth be told, I'm not, and if you're from around here, I'm really, I'm not bashing it. Think East End. Um, people wasting their money on dope, on, on alcohol, um, on prostitutes, um, not taking care of anything, just squandering everything that his father has worked for in another land because he doesn't want anything to do with his dad. That's what kind of a jerk that this kid is. That's who he is really. And about this time, or about the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. Right, this is that part in the story where like, if you're like me, you read this and you're like, yeah, 
It's what you get, punk, right? Like, you waste everything. Like, you're starving, famine hits. Uh, guess you probably shouldn't have wasted so much money. Like, like that's what you get, right? But what I, what I want us to really get from that, he's hit the lowest point that he could possibly hit in his life. He has nothing. He has no home. He has no food. He's a Jew working for a Gentile, which was super low for Jews in the first century to think about doing. Not only that, but he's working for a Gentile feeding pigs, the most unclean animal that you can think of if you're a Jew. And he's so hungry. He's so destitute. He wants to eat what that animal is eating. He's hit absolute rock bottom. And just throwing this out there, we're talking about how God pursues sinners. Know this, and this isn't like me trying to like scare anyone. Often, at least this is my experience and the majority of experiences that I've seen with people, God will let you go as low as you think you need to go until you will look up for him. I promise. He's behind you the whole time saying, all right, man, how much further are you going to go? Like, I'm here. I'm here the whole time. How much further? Like, like, where's rock bottom? And he'll let us hit whatever our rock bottom is so that we will look up because we have no other options. We can't go down any lower. That's one of the ways he pursues us. Just wanted to throw that out to you. But this dude has hit rock bottom. And when he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare. And here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. And I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. This is the heart of repentance. Jesus is talking about sinners who repent. This is it. The son looks at his life and he's saying, I have made the mess myself. This is, this is my fault. This is my problem. I'm just going to go to my father and beg him for mercy. I don't deserve to be a son. Maybe he'll let me be a slave. I don't deserve food um, because I'm a son. Maybe he'll let me work for it. This is the heart of repentance. He's just going to go to his dad and fling himself at his feet and beg for mercy. That's his plan. Verse 20, so he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. And filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a, ro- get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now is found. So the party began. The father saw him from afar as he's coming home. The father had been seeking his son. Where is my son? When will he return? I want him. I want him. And not to read too much into the parable or add my own thoughts into it too much, but I imagine the father was there daily. Where is my son? Is he coming home? I want him. I desire him to return. I know what he's done. I know he's probably screwed up his life. I know he's squandered everything. I know he wishes that I were dead, but I want him. And as the son As he sees the son, he runs to him. You don't see that in their culture. You don't see a wealthy landowner pull his robes up and run to anybody. That was a sign back then that you were really out of control of your life if you had to run to do anything. And the father throws all that aside, all dignity, and says, I'm going. And he runs to his son. And his son starts the whole speech, right? Like his dad's hugging him. I love you. 
And his, and his son starts to speak, Father, I'm a piece of trash. I know I've screwed up my life. Just let me be a slave. No. And the dad cuts him off. Put a robe on him. This is like, a, 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 like to get a robe, like the finest robe in the house, that means you're the guest of honor. Just put a ring on his finger. That's a sign of sonship, right? Family gets a ring because it's usually like a signet to sign things with. This is my son. Put a ring on him. Put sandals on his feet. Slaves don't wear sandals. Only family members wear sandals. What he's saying is, this is my son. Full reinstatement. I know what you've done. You're still my son. I want you. And he starts a party, right? That's awesome. Like, let's throw down. I am stoked that my son is back and he's safe and sound. He's here with me. I love him. I've forgiven him. Let's party. All right. Verse 25, though. Here's where it kind of shifts. Here's the older brother. Remember the Pharisees from the beginning. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house. And he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told. And your father has killed the fattened calf. We're celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, All these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to do. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. I can hear like a bitterness whenever I read that. The older son's angry, right? Like the kid, he's, he's kind of thinking, hey, dad, maybe you should have like let him finish what he was going to say. Like maybe being a slave for a while would be pretty good for him, right? Like don't forget what he's done. He wasted all your money on hookers. Like let's not like forgive so quickly. He's got some stuff that he's got to pay for. Like where's the justice, dad? Where's your anger? You should be mad, right? Because the older brother's mad. He's saying, why don't you like throw down on him? And actually by it, like law in Israel at that time, the father had every right to actually have the youngest son killed. Why don't you do that, dad? That's what he deserves. My brother's a piece of garbage. Why would you show him mercy? No, I won't go inside and celebrate. Why would I celebrate that you've forgiven him? He doesn't deserve that. That's the heart of the older brother. His father said to him, look, dear son, you have always stayed by me, and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the father says he begged him to come in. Better translation, he entreated him to come in. Come on in. Join the celebration. Right? Come celebrate the fact that I've been merciful and gracious to your brother instead of having him killed or making him be a slave. Rejoice that your brother's here. Don't be mad. Right? He says, and it would be morally wrong for us not to celebrate. Right? He's alive. Right? Again, come and rejoice at the fact that your brother has repented. And come and rejoice at my grace. You know, to, to, for, the, for the older brother to stay angry and not recognize his own sin. Right? Because the older brother, he says, I've done everything you've ever told me to do. I've slaved in the fields for you. Right? He's saying, look how good I've been. I've not done anything wrong. And what he's completely ignoring is that by him already not going in and helping host the party, he's completely disrespected his father in front of everyone that's there. By him not celebrating that his brother's back, he has absolutely, like, culturally spit in the father's face. Um, and furthermore, he, he describes his relationship with the father as one of, like, toil and, like, hard work. And never really does he mention enjoying being in his father's house. But this has been a chore for me. 
He doesn't realize how disrespectful that he's being, that he is in this moment sinning against his father. He doesn't realize that. But again, for him to stay angry and not recognize his own sin, to not join the party, is for him to stay on the outside. Like literally in the story, he's outside of the house. But for us, we look at that and we say, okay, he's away from God. He's on the outside. The father's entreating him. Come in, man. Recognize that you're a sinner too and that I've shown you grace as well because I'm out here telling you how much I love you still. You're my beloved son. Right? Come join me inside because if to stay angry is to stay on the outside. But to come celebrate grace and forgiveness and your own sin, not to celebrate that, <laughs> uh, but to acknowledge your own sin and ask for grace and forgiveness and come inside is to be on the inside, to be near to God. But Jesus leaves the parable hanging, right? What will the older son do? There's the question. We don't know. Will he repent and celebrate, or will he be out? We don't know. I think Jesus is leaving that for, uh, for the Pharisees to kind of ponder on. Um, but I think too often, right? Too often Christians find themselves with the older brother's attitude. Just being straight with you, like, that's me a lot of the time, just to be honest. Like, I am, I have an inner Pharisee that you would, like, it would make you want to puke sometimes. <laughs> Like, if you saw how bad that I am sometimes on the inside. Um, But too often, we have that kind of callous, older brother attitude, right, where we're angry. And instead of of wanting someone's repentance, um, we want justice, and we want God's wrath for sinners, right? Like that Campbell's ad that we talked about, like those people talking about how, like, they desire God's wrath on the homosexual community, or people that we've seen on Facebook desiring destruction for ISIS instead of their repentance, that that's what we tend to want. I I think that we would, would pretty often, we would rather sit back and, and silently judge, right? Sit back and be like, all right, like, you're pretty much crap, right? Sit back and silently judge homosexuals, uh, people who are trans, right, because that's got to be worse than homosexuality because it's more confusing. We don't understand it. Um, right? uh, homosexuals, we hate them, and we want to sit back and judge them, and people that are trans, and people that are pro-choice, and people that are greedy, people that are lazy, right, or just people who live immorally in general. We want to sit back and point the finger at them and just silently hope for their condemnation by God instead of making contact with them and telling them about Jesus. Because it's a lot easier to sit back and judge somebody than it is to get in the mix, right? And show them a better actual life, a true life that is Jesus, right? And that kind of mindset, that kind of older brother mindset where we'd rather sit back instead of getting in the mix stands in blatant opposition to the the Father's heart. Stands in blatant opposition to Jesus' mission. It's anti-Christ, Right? It's, it's anti-Jesus mission. It's anti-gospel. It's very religious to sit back and judge people instead of getting involved. But it does not reflect Jesus whatsoever. At all. It doesn't reflect the Father's heart at all. Right? Look, look at the Father in the parable. Right? Look at the shepherd. Look at the woman. And you'll see God. Right? God seeks the lost. He desires them. He is constantly pursuing them like the shepherd, going over all kinds of terrain, whatever it takes to get there, sweeping the house down, whatever it takes. He wants them because he wants them home with him. You know, and, and God doesn't bring up past sins. right? Remember the father in the parable? Whenever the son comes up to him and says, 
I've sinned against you. Does he like lecture him for a half hour about, yeah, I know, you're a piece of trash, kid. No, he doesn't talk anything. He says, bring the robe. This is my son. He restores him, calls him family. And then God rejoices that the sinner has repented, right? The father throws a party. The woman gets her friends to come celebrate over the coin. The shepherd calls the community together. We're going to rejoice. God rejoices that the sinner has turned from his sin and put his faith in Jesus to make him right before God. And here's what i got to say. If this is how God responds, if this is his heart, if this is what he does, then why don't we do the same? Why don't we do the same? We claim to know him. Right? We claim to have been changed by him. We claim to be his children. If we're going to do that, then we must reflect him. If we claim to have been changed, we must reflect his heart. But here's the thing. In order to do that, we're going to have to like daily be very introspective. Right? We're going to have to daily realize that we are the same as the tax collectors and sinners in our eyes. We have the same standing before God. We all deserve hell. Right? It's all about perspective. I say this all the time. It's all about perspective. Again, we have to daily remind ourselves that you're a sinner. And what I mean by that is private sin is the same as blatantly public sin. Right? So, like, gossip, which is usually, like, fairly quiet until, like, someone rats you out for being a gossip, which is kind of gossip for themselves sometimes. I don't know. Gossip's fun. It's not fun. I'm not telling you to go do it. But, like, it's, it gets in the mix kind of weird. Uh, right? But gossip is the same as homosexuality is the same as greed, is the same as terrorism, as far as God's concerned. He hates all of it. It all deserves his punishment, right? So whatever private sin that you have, it's just as bad, right? So like, whether it's adultery or I watch porn all the time, right? Whether it's I drink and I'm underage or people are like complete full-blown alcoholics, whether I don't spend enough time with my wife or I beat my wife, right? It's all the same. God hates it all. We have to know that we are all sinners before him apart from Christ. And then we have to realize that we're only forgiven and accepted by God's sheer mercy. Period. Just like the prodigal threw himself at the feet of his dad. Mercy. Mercy, that's all I'm asking. I just need you to forgive me. That's the only reason that we don't get hell. God is gracious to us like the father in the parable. Right? So hell, God's punishment, isn't just for those sinners. It's for us as well. That's what we deserve. But also God's grace is not just for us. It's also for the ones that we view as being way lower than us. And in reality, we shouldn't view them as lower than us because we suck. Right? Think about what you've done in the past for five minutes, and I guarantee you that you will recognize that you are just as bad as them. And the only reason that we don't get punished is because Jesus has paid for our punishment on the cross already. That's it. Mercy, faith, and God's grace. That's it. Right? But we always have to keep in mind that we are the sheep. We are the coin. We are the bad son. Don't ever forget that on your life. Don't ever forget that. And that God sought you out. When you were far from him, he went to you. And that God doesn't hold any of your sin over your head because Christ has paid for it and Christ rejoices over your repentance. We have to remember that he has shown us nothing but mercy, nothing but love that we don't deserve. And then with that kind of active love of God in mind, 
right? Keeping that in mind daily. You, and hear me out on this. You have to see what Jesus is calling you to do indirectly. He's giving you a command in this passage. He, he's commanding us to join in the seeking. That's what he's doing. He said, this is what I've done. Right? This is what I'm doing. Come join me with this. And come join the celebration as people repent. Right? That's what he's commanding us to do here. He seeks, you must seek. He rejoices, you must rejoice, or you don't know him. All right, so here's where the rubber meets the road, man. This is, this is going to get fun. Who are you seeking? Who are you seeking? Anyone? Are you seeking out anybody? I think about all the people that you come into contact with, your roommates, your teammates, your classmates, your co-workers, your family, your friends. Right? I think that pretty much covers the whole gamut of people that you can know in a given lifetime. Um, who are you seeking after? Right? Are, are you even praying for the groups of people that you tend not to like? Or even for people who don't know Christ that you do like? Are you praying for anyone? Right? Are, are we doing anything to seek out and help those who don't know Jesus? Are we doing anything at all? Because if not, if we're doing nothing, no seeking, no sharing the gospel, no loving, no kindness, if we're not doing anything, then we are just religious Pharisees. That's it. You're very religious, but you don't know Jesus. You don't have true faith, and you're still lost. Because truly knowing Jesus is going to cause us to do as he did and seek out that which is lost. You can't know Christ if you're too complacent or lazy or arrogant or whatever it is to go out and start having conversations with people and pursue those who don't know Christ. Period. We can, we can never be stupid enough or arrogant enough to say that 9 out of 10, like with the coins, or 99 out of 100 with the sheep, we can never be dumb enough to say that that is good enough. We can never think that that's good enough. And hear me out, I, don't, I know this isn't everyone's thing here, but we cannot, and you know who I'm talking to, we cannot allow our theology of election to hinder us from God's firm command to go seek. Absolutely not. Jesus said that he has come to save all that his Father has given him. And we have to be about that mission too. We cannot become content and complacent. We cannot say, I'm saved, that's good enough. Or even, all my friends and all my family are, are Christians, that's good enough. We can never think that it's good enough. To have that mentality is anti-gospel. It's to spit in the face of everything that Jesus has taught us in this passage. He says, go seek That has to weigh on us, or we really can't know the shepherd who found us. That has to compel us to go, or we don't know him. So I'm telling you to go, go seek. On Jesus' behalf, I'm telling you this. This isn't just me, because it would be a lot easier not to do this. I'm telling you to go seek that which is lost. It's going to be weird, and it's going to be awkward, and it's going to make you uncomfortable. But what did we talk about last week? The cost of discipleship. If you're going to follow Jesus, you have to be willing to give up everything, including your comfort. And so, so what I'm telling you to do, even if it's the smallest thing, like, hey, dude, do you go to church anywhere? Right? If that's to a stranger or to someone you know, hey, have you ever been to church that you know that they don't, they don't follow Christ? 
Or, hey, what, who do you think God is? Or what do you think about Jesus? Or maybe even if you're gutsy enough, why aren't you a Christian? You know what I mean? Uh, start a conversation with someone who doesn't know Christ. Show kindness to someone. Help them, whether it's monetary or with your time or just listening to them or whatever it might be. Right? Speak truth to people because you love them and speak it graciously because you love them. Start these conversations. And as you go, you've you got to be motivated by Jesus' example. He found you. He found you. He sent someone to tell you about him. Think about that for a second. Someone had to talk to you about him. You had to hear someone preach. You had to hear in order to believe and be saved. He sent someone to you. Go be that for someone else. Right? He loved you first. Keep this in mind. And he's patient with you still because you're still a sinner and we all still suck even if you're a Christian. God's still patient with you now. And he has never and will never give up on you. So go and do likewise to those who do not know Jesus yet. And remember this, Jesus sought out the lost on God the Father's behalf, right? Jesus acted as the Father's representative, and we, the church, represent Christ on earth. So we must do the same as he did. We have to. We have to do it with the same intensity, with the same passion, with the same urgency that Jesus did it. And we have to do it out of the same spirit of love that Jesus did. Let's pray. Father, you are good to us. We were far from you, and you pursued us. Father, please put something in us to to start talking to people, to start sharing the gospel. Jesus, you weren't kidding whenever you gave us the great commission to go and make disciples. Let that become real to us. Help us to understand and really get hell is real. You really judge people who don't put their faith in Christ. And let that push us and our love for them that we would go and talk, that we would go and share the gospel, that we would tell them that Christ has paid for their sin if they'll put their faith in him. Holy Spirit, empower us to do this. Help us to stop being cowards. Father, make our church more mission-minded on seeking that which is lost. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.